If you haven't opened your Bible up yet, open it up to John 9. It really will help for you to see it for yourself. We're going to look at some other passages as well, and so it will help if you have your Bible open. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for Jesus. He is our gracious Redeemer. He is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind, physically and spiritually. We need the eyes of our hearts opened this morning to see what your word has to say, and we pray that you would do that this morning. Please work among us in power. That's our hope is that Jesus, just as you worked 2,000 years ago, you are still at work through the Holy Spirit, through your word. And so I pray that you would work this morning. Do powerful things among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 9, John chapter 9, is a miracle that demonstrates the truth that we saw in John chapter 8. Do you remember in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And all of chapter 9 is a demonstration through this miracle that he really is the light of the world. That's what we're going to see. He heals a man who's born blind. And when he does it, it's going to expose that there's a lot of spiritual blindness among people who can see with their physical eyes. And we're, we're going to spend most of our time talking about that next week. And it was important for Melissa to read that long story because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this miracle, this one miracle. But what we're going to focus on now is that everyone in this story, except for Jesus thinks that this man is blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's amazing. Everyone just assumes it. Of course, this guy sinned, that's why he's blind, or his parents did. But it's a direct result of their sin. Do you know anybody who's disabled or has a chronic illness? I know you do. What does Jesus think about them? What does Jesus think about you, if it's you? How should you think about disabilities and suffering in this life? This really matters. I mean, this is just ultra practical. How do you think about sickness, disability, pain in this life? And more importantly, how does God think about it? How does he think about you or those who are suffering? What hope do you have? Are you stuck in your pain? your affliction, your confusion forever? These are important questions to answer. So I want to be clear. The main point of this story is going to come next week. In next week's text, starting in verse 35, we get an explanation of what all this is about. The main point. The main point, Jesus is the light of the world. You're either going to see all of reality through him. You're going to see God through Jesus. You're going to see everything in its proper place through him, or you won't see anything the way you should 
That's the main point, and we'll see it next week. But this week, we're going to mostly look at the first seven verses. We'll, we'll go outside to look at other passages as well. Because there's tremendous truth about how Jesus thinks about our brokenness, disabilities, sickness, pain in this present world, and how he relates to us with them. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going we're to start by talking about this man's blindness, and we're going to talk about how to think biblically about sickness and disability. That's how we're going to start. And then we're going to talk about how the healing of this man's blindness, his disability, demonstrates that Jesus is the light of the world, because it does. And then we're going to talk about the purpose behind this man's blindness. Not just the purpose behind his healing, but the purpose behind his blindness and what that means for us. So that's what we're doing. Okay, so let's talk about disability. Let's start by talking about how we should think about sickness and disability. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here's this blind man. The disciples and Jesus walk by. The disciples know he did something. Either either he did something or God foresaw that he was going to be a wicked man and that's why he's blind. Or his parents did something bad, but that has to be the reason you're born blind. I'll jump all the way down to verse 34. So the man gets healed, and he's telling the Pharisees that Jesus must be from God because he gave him his sight. And look at what the Pharisees say. Verse 34, it was the last verse Melissa read. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? So clearly, they're looking at this guy, and they're saying... How dare you try to teach people like us? It's clear you are a nasty human being, or otherwise you wouldn't have been born blind. That's what they're saying. It's a terribly arrogant thing to say, isn't it? How dare you talk to us, sinner? We know you're a sinner because you're blind. But Jesus says, no. That's not why the man's blind. Everyone in the passage but Jesus just assumes this man is blind because of his or his parents' sin. File this text away. In your mental file drawer, put this text in a file, in a folder, and keep it there. If you look at someone who's disabled or sick or injured or suffering, and you assume that it's because of their sin, you would be wrong to assume that. Now, sure, there are physical consequences to sin. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, you are going to have liver problems, 
Or if you're just a mean person, you like to pick fights, some of these, one of these days you're going to pick a fight with somebody who's bigger than you and they're going to beat you up. That's a physical consequence for sin. But you should not look at sick or disabled people and assume they are sick or disabled for a specific sin that they did. Or that, or that. This is even worse. What the Pharisees do, assume that they deserve it and you don't. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. This is important because you will get sick. Some of you are. I hear the coughs in this room. I hear them. If you don't have one yet, this is a super spreader event. So someday, you will be laying on your deathbed. Now, I don't say that to scare you because Jesus will be with you in a special way when it comes. He will. But you need to know it is not because God has abandoned you in your sin. You've got to know that. This is the way life is for all of us in this fallen age. So I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 16 through 24. It's on the screen behind me. You can turn there. And I'm going to comment as I read. These are just nine verses, but I'm going to stop and make comments as we go. Now, this is study time, right? We're studying the Bible because we want to better understand from Romans 8 what Jesus' perspective is on disability, pain, sickness, and futility. Okay, so here we go. Starting in verse 16 of Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. That means inheritors. You're going to inherit. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You will suffer. Just read that sentence. If you are going to be glorified with Jesus, you must suffer. Don't think something strange is happening when it comes. Remember, it will. It will. Paul's talking to Christians. Let's keep going. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if you're in pain right now, if you're suffering, I hope that you don't think that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Because sometimes when people are talking to us about the suffering they're going through, we don't really understand what they're going through, and we're like, I know, it's going to be okay. We have no idea. Paul was beaten everywhere he went. And this guy was shipwrecked four times and lost at sea. Can you imagine? If that happened once in your life, you'd write a book and you'd make lots of money and you would never get on a boat again. Four times he was stoned to death, presumably, and popped right back up. 
And this guy's life was suffering. He had some sort of affliction, we know from 2 Corinthians, in his body that he lived with all his days. This guy knows what suffering is. He's not taking his suffering or your suffering or any suffering lightly. And he says, listen, there's glory coming to you. You are going to be clothed in glory, the glory of God, in such a way that your suffering won't even compare. It would be a disgrace to the glory that's coming to you to even try to put it on the scale next to the suffering you've been through. It's going to be that incredible. And then he says, verse 19, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so he's saying, listen, creation is on tiptoe. Creation, the whole universe is waiting for what? For you and me to become glorified. Creation, the universe is saying we can't wait for those people to be transformed, to share the glory of God. Why? Why is creation longing for that? Eagerly longing. Paul tells us, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. So that means it was made to be disordered. It was imprisoned in brokenness. It was subjected to futility. Things don't work the way that they're supposed to. You just look around at this world, death, disabilities, floods, fires, typhoons, cancer. This world is filled with futility. And you don't have to go very far to see it. Most of us can see it just by looking in the mirror. The world is filled with futility. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was not just them who fell. All creation fell with them. This is a tremendous, massive Christian truth. As the Lord and Lady of all creation, when they fell, it all came tumbling down with them. Now look, it says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so the creation was subjected to futility. Who subjected it? It wasn't Adam or Eve. It wasn't Satan. How do we know that? Because the creation was subjected in hope that it would one day be set free. Which means God is the one who did it. Satan's not hoping for the creation to be set free. Adam and Eve did not sin, hoping that the creation would be set free. God did. He subjected creation to futility in hope that it would be set free from its bondage to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the glory we're going to have someday... 
is not the glory that Adam and Eve had. We're not just going back to the garden. We are going to share the glory of Jesus. We're talking, what's coming for you is elevated glory. And God's hope is that that would happen to the whole creation. It would be lifted up to share the elevated glory that you and I will have when we become like Jesus. Now, when we say that God does it in hope, we don't mean like you're watching a football game. We were talking about a Chelsea match that's happening this Sunday. Oh, I hope they win. I hope they win. I hope they win. They're not. I hope. That's not how God hopes. When God hopes, he is sure that a future desire he has is going to happen. This is a future desire that we would share the glory of Jesus and that all creation would. That's what he's doing when he subjects the world to futility. This world is cursed and it's broken because of Adam and Eve's sin. And God cursed it so that it displays, the creation displays in the physical world the spiritual horrors of sin. So this fall, this fallen world, the brokenness in this world, this is important, is a reflection, a physical reflection of the spiritual damage we've done. You got that? If, if you want to know how awful sin is, look at the brokenness of this world. It's so hard to really grasp how bad sin is, isn't it? I mean, every once in a while we really recognize, oh, my sin is gross and yucky, or that's, sin is, it's a killer. But if you really want to see how nasty sin is spiritually, just look at the brokenness of the world around you. You can see physically just how awful sin really is. War, natural disasters, deformities, decay, rot, infections, those physical corruptions are not worse than sin. They are the result of sin reflecting physically just how awful our sin is against the greatness and goodness of God. That's what the brokenness of this world shows but God's hope, his future desire, is that you would be transformed into glory and that when you are transformed, creation, all the universe, is going to be sucked into your glory. So that this world is not going to work against your joy anymore. It will be form-fitted to your glory to serve your happiness forever. You have never experienced an uncursed day. You've never seen an uncursed sunrise or an uncursed full moon. You've never done a day of uncursed work. And you've never experienced what it's like to enjoy God in the freedom that's coming. And it is coming. Let's finish. Verses 22 through 24. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. That means something's coming from this pain until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Okay, so let's tie this all up and relate it to what Jesus is saying in John. All of creation is groaning. It's experiencing futility, brokenness, sadness, pain because of our sin through Adam and Eve. And because all of creation is cursed, it's all subjected to futility. So so this is really important, guys. While the brokenness of this world is a reflection of how bad sin is, and the brokenness of this world has its roots in our sin through Adam and Eve. You cannot say that a particular disability is the result of a particular person's particular sin. You can't do that. You can't look at someone who gets cancer and say, I guess you didn't pray enough. I guess you're just really nasty. Worse than me. The whole world is fallen. That's life now. All of it is fallen. All of it is broken. Not just for the worst of sinners, but for all of us all the time. And it will be that way until Jesus returns. So Romans 8 is telling us, Christians include him. He said that in verse 23. We ourselves groan. These are Christians groaning. It's not just for the unforgiven or for the really bad sinners. The church in Rome needed Paul to write Romans 8 to them because there were people saying to them, you trust in this God Jesus? You say you're forgiven? Why'd you get sick? Why'd your crops die? Why was your kid born without an arm? say this God's real? He loves you? And Paul's saying, remember church, remember we are trusting Jesus for the life to come. This is so important for you. We're trusting him for what's coming. Disability, sickness, death is part of life in this still cursed world, even if you trust Jesus. And it's not because God hates you. He loves you, and if you believe it in Jesus, he will make you new someday, and all of creation will follow into your glory in Jesus. This this is why, we talk about this a lot, but it's why the prosperity gospel is so disgusting. It's wicked. It's not just like, oh, well, those people think that. That's okay. It's disgusting. If your preacher in person or on TV or the internet tells you that Jesus promises health, if you trust in him, never, I'm pleading with you, never listen to him again. Don't do it. I 
understand why people want to listen to it. If you're suffering, you want, yeah, I'd like to hear that Jesus is going to give me full healing now. But don't listen. Jesus may heal you partially in this life. And you can pray for it. He did for this man in John 9. But the kind of teaching that says that Jesus is going to make you healthy and wealthy in this life, if you trust him, is setting you up for despair and damnation. I'm not trying to scare you again. I said this before. I want you to be hopeful. Jesus is going to be with you. He will be with you in a special way when your time comes. He will. But you are going to get sick one day with the thing that's going to kill you. And you're going to be laying there on your bed thinking about what's going on. You're going to lose your job, your house, all your money. And you've got two options. Either God's going to fix your problem or you don't have enough faith. And God's not going to do anything for you. That's the pathway to despair. And it's not biblical Christianity. That's not what God promises. You trust him in this life for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You trust him to be with you while you continue to live in a fallen world. He'll be with you. He will. And in the end, he will make all things new. So back to our text. Jesus starts with this amazing claim. No one sees it coming. It's not this man who sinned. It's not his parents who sinned. Saw from Romans 8, in life, just life for all of us, our lives are going to be touched by pain and brokenness, sadness, sickness, no matter who you are. And Jesus will be with you and he loves you. That's what he thinks about suffering in this life. Okay, so here's the second thing we're going to talk about. How does this man's blindness and his healing help us see that Jesus is the light of the world? So this is verses 4 through 7. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's talking about his death. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing so, God promised in the Old Testament, a king's going to come. I mean, you don't have to go far reading your Bible to see everything get messed up. Three chapters, that's all. And from then on, the Old Testament is hoping, who's going to fix this? When's it going to be fixed? The hope in the Old Testament is that a king would come, he would bring people back to God, and he would undo the curse. He would heal. Listen to Isaiah 42. God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So he's talking about the Messiah, the future king. 
And then he talks to the Messiah in verse 6, and he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He does the thing the Messiah will do when he shows up. This is incredible because the Pharisees have already made up their minds. I don't know if you heard that when uh, Melissa was reading. They've already made up their minds. Listen, if anybody says that this is the Christ, and that's the Greek word for Messiah, he's getting kicked out of the synagogue. So when Jesus shows up and starts doing the thing that the Messiah is supposed to do, the Christ is supposed to do, they want nothing to do with it. They won't hear it. He's doing the thing the Messiah will do. He's healing the blind. But that's not all. He's not just the Messiah. There are two more passages in Isaiah that talk about healing blind eyes. Isaiah 35 is one of them. Listen to the timing. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to the timing of when these blind eyes will be open. This is Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense, so repayment, of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Seen that in chapter 5. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So when will the blind see? The deaf hear? The lame leap? When God comes. One more text. Isaiah 29. This is verses 15 through 17. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Okay, so here's what's going on, just real quick. The Jews are acting like God doesn't see anything. They're saying, we work our our deeds in the dark, and God doesn't know what we're doing. And God says, I'm a potter, and you're the clay. You know what a potter is? Someone who makes pottery, bowls, vessels, out of clay. Okay, he's saying, that's me. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I made you. Of course I know what's going on. I know everything about you. I made you. I'm the potter, you're the clay. And then he says in verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon, Lebanon's a forest, shall be turned into a fruitful field? It's like a garden. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. So he's saying very soon... Forests are going to become gardens, and things that look like gardens are going to be shown to be forests. I'm going to reverse things when I come. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, 
the eyes of the blind shall see. So God is the potter, and we are the clay. That's what he says in Isaiah 29. He's going to come and save. And when he does, he will make the blind see. Now, in our passage, Jesus spits on the ground in verse 6, and he makes mud. Why is he doing that? Is he just being gross? This is what little boys do. No. That word for mud in verse 6 is the same word for clay in Isaiah 29. Same word. Jesus is making clay from his mouth. And like a potter, he makes new eyes for this man. Who's the potter in Isaiah? God is. Who's the potter who gives a man sight from clay in John 9? It's Jesus. He is God. And he is graciously overturning the curse. Opening this man's eyes. Listen. When, when you see this happen, when you're reading through John, you should think, this is what we've been waiting for. The whole Old Testament has been longing for this day. Longing for the day when the curse would be undone. When all the brokenness in this world, and we feel it, right? We're groaning in our bodies. Longing for it to be undone. And it's going to happen, church. It's going to happen. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Do you think about it? Do you think about it? This is actually going to happen. Someday I'm going to experience what it, likes, what it feels like to be clothed with immortality. It's going to happen. First Peter says, set your hope fully on that, on the grace to be revealed to you. Do you do that? Do you think about the fact that you are going to be immortal, enjoying God forever in a perfect world? You should think about it. It should fill your mind daily. Set your hope fully. The Old Testament was waiting for the Messiah to come and do this. The Old Testament was waiting for God to show up and do it. Jesus is both the Messiah and God. And he's going, to do, he's going to do it. He's going to make all things new. Now we know from Romans 8, he's not going to do it until the very end. Which means when he does miracles on earth, he's giving us a preview of what's coming. It's just a preview. It's like the trailer for the movie. You can watch the minute or minute and a half trailer. You're not watching the whole thing. That's what Jesus' miracles are. He heals this blind man. Guess what? This blind man eventually got old and died. Just like Lazarus, we're going to read in two chapters. It's brought back to life. He's got to do it all over again. But in the next life, this man will see... And he'll never lose his sight. He'll live and never die. Never get sick. Never get old. He'll never be sad or separated from God. The miracles are giving us a preview of what will come in the next life for you if you trust in Jesus. Now, 
Here's our last point. Seeing the glory of God, seeing God's glory is really valuable. It's really valuable for your soul to apprehend how glorious God is. It's really valuable. It's so valuable. It's worth being blind to see. Notice that Jesus tells us why this man was born blind in verse 3. And we know he's, he's, it's a part of the curse. The whole world's fallen. That's why blindness is in the world. But Jesus says God has a purpose in it. A purpose in this man's blindness. In verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The Greek says this as strongly as possible. He was blind in order that the works of God would be displayed in him. That means there was purpose in this man being blind for 16, 18, 20 years. We don't know how old he is. He must be young. His parents have to say he's of age so he can speak for himself. But sit and think about that for a second. God had a plan for this man being blind. His blindness was not an accident. God purposed that the man would be blind so that he could display his works in him. I'm not getting that from anywhere else except from the sentence. You can see it for yourself. Just reading what the sentence says. And this suggests, this implies a few things. First, God has purposes in our pain, our limitations, our disabilities, and our weaknesses. This man's blindness was no small thing. Okay, so again, we're not minimizing anybody's pain. This guy's blindness was a massive affliction. Okay, it says he's a beggar in verse 8. He didn't get to play games with other kids when he's growing up. He's an outcast. He's begging. He can't see anything. He doesn't know what colors are. And on top of that, everyone who sees him thinks he's a nasty, nasty sinner. This guy's experiencing massive affliction. But God, we know from verse 3, had a purpose in it. Don't think that God is out of control when you're in pain. Please. Don't think that God has his hands tied when you're in pain. God has purposes. Here's the second thing we see. God displaying his works in us must be deeply satisfying. It must be. It must be deeply satisfying for God to display his works in your life. God loves you intensely. Intensely. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than your parents, your spouse, your pet. He loves you way more. Ephesians 3, Paul says, he loves you so much, it is beyond your ability to comprehend how much he loves you. 
His love for you is intense. It's going to take eternity, tens of thousands of years, for us to just get a taste of how intense his love is for us. He loves us intensely, which means if he is willing to let you go through pain and suffering for his glory to be displayed, which is what the text says he did in this man, then it must mean that his glory being displayed will be really, really satisfying in the end. Most of us think, I'm in pain. Are you kidding me, God? Are you kidding? Why do you hate me? You must not love me. I mean, you know this. If you've had kids and you've ever had to take them to the doctor where the doctor has to do something painful to them to help them. Rowan Finn was one. Was he one when he smacked his head on the Humphreys table? Humphreys had a very dangerous table in their house. Finn, this was in the U.S. Finn hit his head, his eye, cut it open. He was like totally cool with it. I mean, he cried for a second. We We go to the hospital. He's totally cool. Then they start to stitch it up. And like... He's a one-year-old, but he's like, there's like 20 nurses in there trying to hold him down, you know? And he's looking at us like, why do you hate me? Really? You can't explain that to a one-year-old? What are you doing? I love Finn with my whole heart. I mean, it just breaks you inside as a parent, doesn't it? See your kid go through pain. I did not love him more than God does. God does not enjoy your pain. He does not enjoy your pain, which means what you get on the other side, more sight of his glory, must be truly satisfying. It must be. I hope you put a premium on seeing God's glory. I hope you understand how precious God thinks it is for you. And you pursue it like it is a treasure like no other. Because it is. It's that satisfying seeing the glory of God. It's the most satisfying thing. Here's the third implication. Often, many times, the way that God puts light into our souls is through affliction in our bodies. Often, not all the time, but many times, the way that God puts light into our souls is through affliction in our bodies. Now notice, Jesus does not say, this man was healed so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's obviously true. It's obviously true that he was healed so that the works of God would be displayed in him. That's not what he says. He says more than that. He says, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man suffered for how many years? 16, 18, 20 years before he was healed. Being called a sinner, looked down on, begging for a living, he's going to receive a gift that these healthy, self-righteous Pharisees won't get. 
He's going to receive a precious gift the healthy will not receive. He will believe in Jesus and be forgiven forever. Often, it is the cancer in our body that God uses to heal the cancer in our souls. The pain in our joints that God uses to heal the deadness in our hearts and the chaos all around us in our circumstances that God uses to give us peace in our souls. The psalmist says, Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted. How do you say something like that? It was good for me that I might learn your statutes. My aim is not to explain the exact reason for your suffering. I don't know. I'm not that wise and I'm not that good. I don't know. Only God knows. But I want you to know that he has purposes in it and he has gifts for you in it. It's not a light thing I'm saying. In all your afflictions, if you trust in Jesus, he has purposes for you in them and gifts for you through them. You need to think about that and know that and hold it in your heart right now so that you don't walk away. I want you to lean into God when pain comes. He is good. And he is always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul puts that in Romans 8 right after the passage we read. Some people hate that verse. How dare you say Romans 8, 28 to me, God works all things for good. You have no idea what I'm going through. And I don't. But I know that I would be insane without Romans 8, 28. Insane. I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think I would be a broken man mentally if I did not know the truth that God works all things, not some things, not most things, not the things he can catch in his hands. He doesn't do the things that slip through his fingers. All things for good. All things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus is the light of the world, church. He healed a blind man so that you would know that he has purposes in this broken world and gifts to give you. So trust his goodness and know that someday, know that someday, this is not going to keep going on forever. Someday he will make you new. He'll give you comfort and peace and joy that's immortal. The history of this world up until now has been one of mostly brokenness. But that's not what most of the history of the universe will be. It will be a blip on the radar and everlasting millennia, ages of life and joy if you trust him. So trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your son in him was light, and that light was the life of men. What good do we have apart from you, God? We have no good. Thank you for the truth that you are working. You have purposes and gifts to give while we endure and groan inwardly. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you conquered the sin in our hearts. You conquered the guilt that we have accrued towards you. And you have purchased, Jesus, the renewal, the elevation, the glory of us and with us all creation. You are very great, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.